It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading the Talk Politics podcast. This week I am joined for the entire show by Gloria DiPiero, former Labour MP for Ashfield. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. I'm delighted to say we're also joined on the line by Dr. Carolyn Johnson, who's a Conservative MP and Vice Chair of the Conservative Party. Uh, welcome to the show, Caroline. Uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, I just want to focus on schools and education uh, for the moment to kick off with. Uh, it seems that uh, teachers, certainly the teachers that we've spoken to on this show, um, quite a few of them are already back at schools because they are looking after children uh, of uh, the frontline care workers. So this idea that teachers are just sat at home refusing going back to school is not strictly accurate. But teachers, I think, are, are, are looking for more reassurances and uh, uh, more information from the government. So uh, why are you not publishing, for example, the scientific advice, all the scientific advice that SAGE have been given and the government have been receiving in order to make arrive at the decision that you want to open schools by June the 1st? Why don't you publish that advice? Because transparency seems to be the way forward here because it seems to me that the government... The teaching unions, the schools and the teachers all want the same thing, which is what's best for the kids. So publishing that scientific advice would probably be the best way forward, wouldn't it? Well, I think the government has been transparent on its advice. It's given um, most of the uh, medical information on coronavirus is being published without paywalls on the, on the uh, medical journal. So the peer-reviewed aspects of the advice that the government is looking at are available for uh, you and I to look at on the internet if we would wish to do so. The um, uh, the government's also produced quite significant amounts of guidance, and we'll be producing more guidance on for schools to try and reassure them. We, you know, we recognise. I recognise. I've got three children myself. Just how hard my children's teachers are working, um, very long hours to prepare different lesson plans that can be delivered um, remotely to children that are not all in school. Um, and as someone who's going into work at the hospital uh, as a doctor as well, uh, I'm also uh, taking my three children into school and saying that, yes, there are a number of children still in school uh, at the moment. OK, but can I just clarify that the, the, the actual sage scientific advice when it comes to children and schools, that has not been published, to my knowledge, because you, you said there's, there's a little bit of advice that people can look up. But the actual advice on reopening of schools, that's not available to the general public. 
So my understanding is that the science on which um, the advice is based is mostly mostly stuff that's in the public domain, and that the the the, the scientists will you know provide their opinion to ministers, and the ministers will then make a decision, and the minister's decision is then published. Uh, as part of guidance for schools. So there's a lot of information for schools. It's, you know, the government's been working, and my understanding is the Secretary of State uh, speaking every week to the various different teaching unions to try and um, allay the concerns, because I think we all want the same thing, which is the children back into school as early as possible um, uh, and as early as it's safe to do so. But also, um, whilst recognising that risk is not going to be eliminated completely in any workplace, uh, and, and indeed it's not at the moment for those um, attending school, it can't be eliminated completely, but we can reduce the risk as much as we possibly can. And that's, that's what we're aiming to do. The, the question I'm asking well, fundamentally, that? fundamentally is that you have stated as a government that we need certain things to be in place before we can start going anywhere near back to normality and one of the main things and certainly by looking all over the world one of the main things that any country needs in order to come out of lockdown is a really solid test track trace and isolate system it's mid-may you promised it was going to be here by mid-may it's not do you understand why there is a problem well i i I don't agree with your premise that you you would never do anything because the uh, knowledge about diseases keeps increasing. As a medic, I know that we are learning new things about what might be described as older diseases all the time. But it's right that if we learn something new about what is effectively a new disease, that we alter our plans as such. And if that means it takes an extra couple of weeks to get an app up and running that works for the new disease that we've learned about, then I think that's the right thing to do. Um, can I ask you um, about the story on the front page of The Independent. I understand that new immigration rules are coming to the Commons tomorrow and it appears you've got a bit of a Tory rebellion on your hand, that Tory MPs, some, are demanding a softening of the new rules just for the benefit of our listeners. There's a £624 immigration health charge. There's also going to be um, a minimum, well, there is a minimum salary threshold for workers to enter the UK at the moment, but that will be increased Given that Oxford University published a report this week saying that nearly one in five of those working in essential care-related occupations are immigrants, is your colleague Steve Double right when he says there will be very serious consequences if we get this wrong and there is no one to care for an elderly person in a residential care home? Is Steve Double right that if we don't have the number of people to care for people that it will be a problem? Well, of course he is. Of course we but need there are vacancies. Yeah. But given that there are uh, a huge number of care vacancies at the moment, if you make it less attractive or more difficult for those essential care workers okay. who are who are immigrants coming into the system, then we got a problem. So do the rules need to be loosened in light of what we have learned about during this pandemic about how reliant we are on those migrant workers to care for our loved ones. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We are joined on the line by John Byrne Murdoch. He's the senior data visualisation journalist at The Financial Times. Uh, John, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to have you back. Thanks, Alexis. Good to be here. 
John, can I uh, get your thoughts on the uh, the question that everyone's been debating for the last week, especially Gloria and I touched upon it, with the vanishing of the world comparison site from the daily briefings. Uh, we've had a text this morning already saying this is nonsense. Of course, we should be able to compare ourselves from country to country. You've got your head right in the middle of all that data with those amazing charts that you do for the Financial Times, uh, which are free to view, by the way. They're not behind your paywall. Uh, what, are you, what, what are your thoughts on this? Is it, is, is it really unfair when you look at the seven-day uh, rolling average to compare it to deaths per million, you know, to take all those precautions, not just look at the big numbers? Is it really true that you can't draw any comparisons between country to country? I mean, it is, it is a difficult one. Now, I've, I've been listening to the show this morning and I heard um, that, that text come in using South Korea as an example. And, I, you know, when, when we're talking about such stark contrasts as that, the UK versus South Korea, 34,000 versus fewer than 1,000, you know, there's no question that is a valid comparison to make. But I think the challenges come when we start talking about, for example, the UK versus Italy, where... The, the two countries' trajectories and numbers have been much closer to one another, but then it becomes a question of are Italy counting their deaths differently to the UK and that kind of thing. And I think my, you know, my, my view on this all the way through has been that looking at how different countries' um, numbers have risen and fallen and, and the pace of change and that kind of thing, I think is still absolutely meaningful but i think it's this sort of horse race mentality that we're in now um and this you know this has obviously become a very political very partisan issue and i think it's it's these comparisons of two numbers one one number in one country to one number in another where the numbers are quite close together and saying well this number is slightly higher than that one therefore this country has failed and the other country has succeeded i think that's where there's a danger that that people are making big, bold claims based on what could ultimately just be the result of countries using different definitions. So, you know, I, of course, I'm, I'm still going to say that the charts that we're putting out at the FT, these international comparisons, are absolutely useful. But as I say, I think they're most useful in looking at general trends rather than saying, because this number is slightly higher than that one, this country has failed and that one su uh, succeeded. Um, OK, Um what do general trends tell us about what's going on in our care homes? Right, so the care home has obviously become a critical question now. And, and this is where the data that we have from the Office of National Statistics, I think, is is very, very useful. So the this really makes the point, this, this allows us to make the point that we've really been dealing with two outbreaks um, of coronavirus in the UK. The the outbreak in the in the wider community, which has been seen in the deaths in hospitals, and then the outbreak going on in care homes. And the the key point to make here is that while um, COVID deaths in hospitals peaked on April the 8th, it was about 10 days after that that they peaked in care homes. And then I think even more importantly, while deaths in uh, COVID deaths in hospitals are now down by about a third from from the peak in care homes they're still at 93 percent of that peak so you know there's a there's a growing um sense um that the uk's outbreak is very much in remission and, and things are getting a lot better but that's really only true of this 
community-wide outbreak, whereas in care homes, as I say, that figure of 93%, it's still barely down from the peak. And and so, yeah, you know, comments have been made that the the care home outbreak is still raging, and I think that's, that's still unfortunately yeah. broadly true. Yeah, very, very worrying. Um, now, the Office of National Statistics this week uh, published COVID deaths by occupation. Um, quite quite detailed stuff uh broken down by gender and, and and jobs can you can you tell us um or explain to our listeners what jobs are most at risk sure and you know i, I think this this stuff isn't necessarily especially surprising although there were a couple of bits that stood out so the the less surprising stuff i think was the fact that a lot of a lot of key workers a lot of workers in in say manufacturing and construction and particularly men here and, and i think a lot of your listeners will know that men have, have tended to be um affected more acutely by covid um so a, a lot of these workers in in essential roles where they've they've had uh, in, had to or felt they've had to keep going out there um, and working they tend to be much more likely than the the national average to contract or unfortunately to die from um, COVID. But the, perhaps the slightly more surprising was that healthcare workers have not necessarily been um, more badly affected than the average, whereas workers in social care, so this might include things like um, care homes, have been worse affected. So there are all sorts of things going on here. And I mean, the only note of caution I'd add is that these numbers are looking at the uh, the likelihood of of someone succumbing to coronavirus, regardless of whether or not they that they, one what I'm trying to say here is these numbers aren't saying what the likelihood of someone dying mm-hmm. from the from the virus is after contracting it. This is just a simple um, calculation of number of people who've died from COVID out of all people who work in that industry. So, in other words, those rates are telling us as much about the likelihood of someone being infected with the virus as they are of someone dying. So again, it's, it's therefore perhaps less surprising that what we're seeing is people who have still been going out and working um, are coming out as slightly more likely to, to contract or, or die from the virus. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We are joined now on the line by Lord Andrew Adonis, a former Labour Transport Secretary. Uh, Lord Adonis, uh, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to have you back on. Thank you for giving us your time. Good morning. Great to be with you. Now, I, uh, I, I've been following your, your tweets and uh, uh, the things that you've been writing and saying you are very much uh, uh, on the side of the government in getting the schools to reopen by the 1st of June. But can you understand perhaps a little bit why teachers feel a little bit unsure, a little bit insecure uh, of what the government is telling them is safe uh, and right to do so, particularly, as we've been discussing in the last few days, of the government's handling of the care home situation, for example? Well, I, I don't see myself as on the side of the government. I see myself as on the side of the public and the teachers themselves, because the public at large and parents are keen 
for the schools to come back when it can be done safely. And most teachers I know are in teaching because they want to teach and, and they're keen to do the same. And uh, the care home situation and the school situation are radically different because of the nature of the transmission of the disease. There are virtually no known cases of children uh, in this country dying of COVID-19. And it's, it's, it's not clear that they play much, if any, part in the transmission of the disease either. So it obviously needs to be done safely. But what we need is uh, the teachers' organisations and the head teachers to be working with the government on that. And that is, I'm glad to say, happening. And we're only talking, let's be clear what we're talking about. We're talking about bringing back a few year groups in primary schools and secondary schools so that it's possible to have uh, fewer students per class, more social distancing. Of course, all the arrangements need to be put in place. But when the government shut the schools to most students uh, at the end of March, it did so on the planning assumption that key workers would continue, continue to send their children to the schools and that about 20% of pupils would still be attending schools. Well, actually, because people have been so keen to do a total lockdown, only 2% of uh, pupils have been going to school, not the 20% that were actually being planned for. And almost every school in the country is, in fact, open every day to cater just, though, at the moment for the 2%. But they've been putting in place arrangements, including social distancing, moving desks further apart, all these sorts of things uh, to make it uh, it safer to do so. So this uh, bringing back of more year groups uh, from the 1st of June is the incremental next step. And I think most teachers and most parents, uh, and not just the government, I think it is a sensible thing to do. And it's been happening across Europe too. Andrew, um, it's good to talk to you. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, you mentioned those figures about the number of, of children in school at the moment. This has been billed as sort of a war between government and teaching unions. Actually, doesn't the evidence suggest that it's parents who are really at fault here? And it's not just the figures that you mentioned there. 20% allowed, only 2% are going. There's an online poll which reported in um, one of the newspapers today of 20,000 parents, which found that 81% would not send their child back to school next month. And 62% said they did not think it would be safe for the children to return until September at the earliest. Uh, well, Gloria, you make very good points about about uh, parental views in terms of the advice they're being given. What's happening, of course, is the parents are playing back to pollsters what they're being told by the government and by every, you know, on the airwaves the whole time. Uh, as soon as that advice changes, and it's starting to change in a bit of a haphazard way, but let's be frank, uh, Boris Johnson's messaging hasn't been exactly crystal clear this week, has it? As, as soon as the government's advice changes and head teachers put in arrangements, and all my experience as a former schools minister, once um, parents start getting emails from head teachers saying we are making provision for, you know, years one and six, for example, to come back in primary school, and it's going to be done in this safe way, they will return. And that is already happening in in, uh, in some cases because some of the, uh, uh, the schools have been making better arrangements than others, both for online learning and for key workers, and actually encouraging the key workers' uh, children to come back in. And they've had much higher levels of attendance. So what's clearly important in this is that we get consistent messaging as well as, as consistent and high-quality preparations. And I think parents who, of course, themselves aren't familiar with every last detail of, um, of the situation, they will, by and large, do what they're recommended to do by their head teachers, 
by their teachers and by the government. And to be absolutely blunt, which is why discussions like this are so important, we need all of those three groups to get their act together, whereas up till now, the, uh, the planning and the messaging has been pretty haphazard. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. I'm Gloria DePiero joining Alexis Conran on Talk Politics. Now, this pandemic is affecting us all in different ways. But what about if you have a disability? Does that make a big difference to your experience of this? Well, we're going to find out now by talking to Vicky Foxcroft, who is the Labour MP for Lewisham Deckford and Shadow Minister for Disabled People. Welcome to the show, Vicky. Oh, hiya. The help that you uh, that you would have got if you were on the shielded list, so the carers coming around to the house, the PPE, the food parcels, am I right in thinking that if you're not on the shielded list, that means you're not getting to the food parcels that you're entitled to? Not necessarily. Um, so some local authorities are doing really good work and really considering, you know, disabled people, people who are vulnerable, to make sure they've got access to it. But in terms of the government guidance and ensuring that they've definitely got that, no, that isn't the case. That's extraordinary. Um. And in the coronavirus legislation, I was reading that councils can trigger something called easements and that would allow councils to stop sending carers to visit people. That's in the legislation, but surely councils aren't actually taking advantage of that and stopping sending carers around. And I would really hope that councils don't do that. But unfortunately, seven local authorities are using them at the moment. But we've got concerns about whether or not they've followed the guidance from the Department of Health and Social Care about whether or not they should be doing that. And actually, I think on that point, you know, actually government should be shoring up support for disabled people right now, not cutting it. 
And in terms of we, we tried in the first when we tried and failed to talk to you earlier, when we and I made the point about when we think about care homes, we normally think of older people in them. But of course, there are lots of care homes with uh, for residents with autism and learning difficulties. And I, we couldn't hear your reply to that. Is it the same challenges in those care homes with staff not getting the tests they need and the PPE they need? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's really concerning is that there's been 175% rise in deaths of people with autism or learning difficulties. And we don't know why that rise has gone and happened because these people aren't being tested. So we don't know what the cause of this is. And we absolutely need to make sure that those people have also got access to that PPE equipment because, you know, we, we can see from the figures there's been huge increases in the number of deaths. Just to go back to another um, question I asked you earlier, but we didn't quite get the hear, hear your reply. Are super so if you are disabled but not shielded, you, you get no priority for your online shopping. Is that what is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So and I super, think are supermarkets needs, doing? Sorry, no, I think that government needs to be far stronger with supermarkets to say that these people need access to online shopping or if they need to go in into a store that they need to go and have those adjustments to make sure that they can shop safely for food and i asked you also about diabetes um diabetics are certainly uh figures show much more susceptible to the illness to the virus but they're not in the category for being shielded. Is that no, correct? No, and 25% of the deaths are, are people with diabetes. And I think that, you know, we really need to go and have the, um, you know, the statistics published, you know, what are the age of people, what are the ethnicity of people, so that actually we can readjust that shielded list and where people need to shield because they've got diabetes, we ensure that they are doing Okay, and finally, Vicky, um, you were one of the people, there'll be many people uh, across the country who are in the same situation, but I know you were due to get married to Luke in July. Yeah. Are you one of yeah. the many people that's had to pull that or are you doing it in a different way or what's, what, yeah. what's happened to yeah. you? Yeah, unfortunately, because I'm on the list that's shielded to June the 30th, we're due to be getting married in July so um, we're not able to register for the wedding even if I was allowed out at that stage Thank you for downloading this podcast, a reminder you can listen to Talk Politics live every Sunday between 10 and 1pm Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt Now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.